You're listening to the Gate Charlotte Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. just updating me on the score. So. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in uniform, you notice. I'm, I'm representing, absolutely I am. So yeah, it was great to be here this morning as it has been every previous visit. And uh, I've mentioned this in prior visits, that uh, my wife and I came to Charlotte in 1979, and uh, we were working across town at a denominational church, and then in 81, we came to Pineville. Now, those of you that have any history in South Charlotte know that Pineville was not then what it is now. Neither was Matthews or Weddington, or I was in a traffic jam in, of all places last night, in Waxhaw. <laughs> what has happened to this place? But uh, we have an affinity for this city, I always have, because of all the years that we spent here. We were in pastoral ministry for 27 years. And uh, then there was a restraining order that was taken out on me. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. And so, it, you know, they lifted it not long ago. So, no, not at all. Not at all. <clears throat> I, uh, I have great value for worship. Our church, for all those years, 27 years, was a worshiping church. And um, quite often we would have people, and I'm sure it's not the case here, we'd have people that really were not into worship, but they loved the Word, and they knew that I would give them their money's worth when it came that time. And uh, I don't mean that sounds self-absorbed, but I did. And um, quite often what we would do without any announcement whatsoever, I'd get up and teach first. And then all the people that only came for the teaching were thrust into the worship. It was a fun experience. Uh, I had some other exercises. I didn't know I was going to share this with you, but you're bringing this out in me. Uh, I, I began to notice, and we had a large congregation, over 700 people at one time, and, uh, which back in those days, that was a pretty healthy congregation. And uh, I, I began to notice that people... Well, obviously, uh, human beings are creatures of habit, and uh, they would always sit in certain places. Can you guess what I did? You can't, can you? Uh, on occasion, I would say, I want everybody that's sitting in the front to move to the back, and everybody in the back to move to the front, and everybody in the middle just shuffle. Now, I wasn't trying to be annoying, even though I was accused of that. But I realized something, and you might think that that was just a trivial thing for me to do. But I realized that, as I mentioned, I think, this morning, that your reference always determines your preference. Your viewpoint is just that, a view from a point. 
And we don't realize, because we are such creatures of habit, that if you sit in the same place and you look from the same perspective every time, you'll see the same thing. That's why I think, uh, and I didn't know I was going to go in this direction, but in the book of Revelation, um, I, I wrecked, almost wrecked our church 25 years ago. I taught for 33 weeks on the book of Revelation, verse by verse, and I left out chapters 2 and 3. And this was before preterism and a lot of the other views that are now embraced um, were being championed by anyone. Uh, so when I let people know that I didn't believe in the evacuation of the church, but I did believe in the return of the Lord, it went over like a lead balloon. You can imagine here in the Bible Belt. And uh, I thought, you know, our church, I, f I felt like I was driving a bus. People were getting on and people were getting off. People were getting on and getting off. And um, so, at any rate, why was I telling that story? I had a senior moment. Yeah, I like to stir the pot. And, and I, um, I just, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to worship, uh, even though sometimes it may not appear that way if you are watching me at all during the worship time, I am very much engaged. Um, sometimes... And my wife is not here tonight. She was here this morning. Uh, this precious angel from God has to remind me, because you can see that I have a face made for radio. <laughs> and you, you can see that, uh, look at me right now. I'm as happy as a clam. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Don't, you don't want to ever want to play cards with me. <laughs> it's not intentional. It's just the way it is. But I was thinking during the corporate worship service of the psalm that says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You can't magnify the Lord by yourself. That's why he said, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I mean, when this word magnify, uh, and essentially in the Hebrew language, it, it means just what it translates to in English. It means to enlarge, and you, you know that you cannot enlarge God. You can't make God bigger than he already is. But I'll put it to you this way. If you take a five-year-old boy and you give him a magnifying glass and you set him free in your backyard and he turns that little magnifying glass that will fit in the palm of his hand toward the sun, he can set your house on fire, even though it's 93 million miles away. So I do believe in corporate worship. It's such a great experience. It really is. And I just remembered what it was. I forgot a moment ago, but uh, I was going to make a promise to you that I don't know that I could keep, and that's a promise that Elizabeth Taylor made to her eighth husband. That is, I won't keep you very long. So, um, But I'm not sure I can keep that promise. 
Uh, I'm going to read a text that is familiar, I'm sure, to most all of you, found in the Psalm, Psalm 139, if you want to turn, turn there quickly. And while you're turning, I heard a story many years ago about a single mother who had twin boys, and these boys were beyond the word incorrigible. She was losing it. She had never gone to church. She'd never take, taken those boys to church. But she thought as a last-ditch effort, I think I'm going to make an appointment with a pastor, and I'm going to take them in and explain to the pastor my dilemma. So she does. She gets down to the office. While the boys are sitting out in the pastor's uh, out there in the lobby, uh, she explained her problem. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I'm losing my mind. I'm a single mom. I, I just don't, I mean, it's like they're possessed. Now, remember, these little boys had never been in a church in their entire life. They had never, ever met a pastor. So the pastor said, I think I've got this one. Send them in by themselves. But I want you to send them in one by one. So the first little boy came in, and he's sitting there. You can imagine how intimidated he was. He's looking across this big mahogany desk with rows of books from floor to ceiling behind this intimidating figure. And the pastor looked at the little boy in a very deep, resonant voice and said, Young man, where is God? The little boy was stupefied by the question. He didn't understand at all what he was getting at. And he paused for what seemed an eternity, and the pastor once again in a deeper voice said, young man, where is God? And the little boy just bolted out of his chair, and he ran out of the pastor's office, and he grabbed his twin brother by the hand as he's frantically running down the hallway, and his brother is saying, what happened, what happened? It wasn't until they got in the parking lot. He said, what happened? He said, they've lost God, and they think we took him. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1, I won't read the whole chapter, even though we could and many of you get caught up on your Bible reading for the week, so, um, but I won't do that. Very familiar words, words that are almost worn smooth with familiarity. I return to these passages again and again and again after all these years, even in some Bibles that I've highlighted and underlined and written in the margins to the point that they're no, more, no longer legible, only to see that the Holy Spirit has the ability to take these precious gems and turn them in a way that I'd never seen it before, and it refracts some insight that I'd not seen even 40 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Oh, Lord, you've searched me. And known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar off. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And such knowledge, he says, is just too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you're there. The inescapable presence of God. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. <laughs> We're really learning how to walk in the dark these days, aren't we? What a great adventure this is. Yeah, you, most of us see this as a great interruption and disruption. And it's really a, an adventure. G.K. Chesterton said that a disruption, an interruption, an inconvenience is just an adventure misinterpreted. That one will work on you. I want to talk to you <clears throat> about learning to be present to the presence, learning to be present to the presence, and uh, the direction that I take and the language that I employ uh, could possibly be challenging. I don't know. I don't want to assume anything because assumption is the lowest form of knowledge. It really doesn't have any witness or evidence whatsoever. But David, let's consider the author of this particular psalm. He is truly a bundle of contradictions, isn't he? That's one of the things I love about him. He's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a lyricist. He was both tender and violent, wasn't he? He had a heart after God, but he had a propensity for lust. Hmm. He had moments when his faith was exemplary and other times when he seemed to be bipolar. And I mean that with all sincerity. I mean when you're reading the Psalms, which are essentially his journals, that's what they are. And I've often wondered, and I think I know the answer to this, not only with the psalmist, but even with the Apostle Paul. I think that they were clueless whenever they were penning these journals, these epistles. They were clueless that they would be preserved through antiquity. And we here, all these thousands of years later, would be reading what they were journaling, or we would be reading personal letters that Paul wrote to churches that he was in relationship with. That's pretty amazing to me. We have the opportunity in reading the Psalms basically just to eavesdrop on his deepest thoughts, don't we? Because that's, again, what they are. And it's a lot of it, if you haven't noticed, is nothing but self-talk. I love the warp and woof of all of his emotions. I mean, he can be riding along talking about, you are my shield and you are my high tower. And then all of a sudden, he, like a roller coaster, he slips into this deep cavernous vortex of emotion. Why are you allowing my enemies to triumph over me? Which, you know, really, one of the th things I really love about the Scripture is the dysfunctional nature of all of its families. You'd be hard-pressed to find a perfect family from the first family all the way through. It's riddled with dysfunction. And God's still proud of every one of them. 
So, I mean, this, as I said, is really us eavesdropping on his self-talk. And self-talk, I believe now more than ever in my entire life, now I'm in the last half of life, and I don't mean that, you know, in a morbid sense. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it now more than ever before because of what I've learned. Uh, we were talking the other day, I'm, I'm conducting a lot of uh, retreats now where I'm bringing pastors and leaders to me, and then I'm also going to other venues. And I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this past week who lives in this city. He was an elder to me who I've known, oh, I don't know, 35 years. I said, I'd like to bring some of these guys in their 30s and 40s together, and let's just talk to them about these are the mistakes we made. You don't have to make them. You know, I like what Carl Jung says about this. You know, he says our life is really segmented in the same way any singular day is. There's a morning, afternoon, and evening to our life, and the things that were true of us in the morning of our life are not true of us in the afternoon of our life, and the things that were true of us in the afternoon of our life will not be true of us in the evening of our life. Does that make sense to you? And navigating transition through those ages and stages is really, really important to understand that about yourself. Who do you talk to the most or who talks to you the most? You do. You hear your voice more than anyone else. That's why self-talk is so critically important and even learning to observe our own thoughts. I think that's, again, part of what David is doing He's learning to observe his own thoughts. You're not who you think you are. You're not who other people think you are, but you certainly think you are because you've not learned how to observe your own thoughts. Everybody okay so far? You see, you believe what you say more than the most powerful or positive person around you. And whether you're willing to admit it or not, you have a subconscious playlist that is on a constant loop that creates this echo chamber in which you, talk, you can talk yourself into or out of anything. So that's basically what I see is happening here with David in this particular psalm. He is relentless in his attempt to understand God and to understand himself more. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, the most important thought you ever have is what you think about God because it shapes what you think about yourself. Beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder, not the one being being held, beheld. So, to become aware of God's loving presence in our lives, we've got to accept that this human culture that we're a part of is in a mass hypnotic state. You know why sometimes it's so hard for us, at least my, from my perspective, why it's so hard for us? We talk about pressing into the presence. It shouldn't be a press. The presence of God is pervasive it's inescapable. You cannot not be in the presence of God. Now, you grammar teachers, leave me alone. You can't not not be in the presence of God. 
The issue is not the presence, the issue is your awareness. We were singing this morning about, you know, being awakened. And as I scan the audience right now, I don't think I've yet put anybody to sleep. But just because your eyes are open does not mean that you are fully awake any more than you sitting in that chair guarantees that you are completely here. Awareness is so essential, you know, and, and I've said this so many times in the past, but I think it fits perfectly with what uh, I want to talk to you about here this evening is that technology has so overstimulated us. I'm getting ready to start a book soon, not write this one. I'm reading this one. I'm writing another one, but that's another story. Um, that talks about how the attention span, our attention span, uh, has been so diminished because technology has over, so overstimulated us until it makes, us almost it makes it almost impossible to be fully present. So I, I, I think when we read the Psalms, we need to understand something about the presence of God that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. And it is understanding that the presence of God is not ethereal. It's not unearthly. It's not unearthly, which, by the way, I know most of you I'll be preaching to the choir or the majority of you, but heaven has never been in a direction. It's in a dimension. And I know that you would take me to certain proof texts in the Scripture and say, well, isn't it clear here that it indicates that it's up? Well, you do understand that God is infinite and we are finite, and He's put us in a time-space dimension. And so in order for us to connect, to relate to His infinity, He talks in terms of up and down, out there. But God has never been up there, out there, never been. I must have made a wrong turn there. You see... And I don't want this to sound so, I don't want it to sound esoteric, but I could make a case here, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury if I had time this evening, but I've already made you a promise. <laughs> that we, what we call reality, is nothing more than a thin membrane that obscures, that is an illusion, that obscures. Where, real re where reality actually exists. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, even in the New, there's evidence where those who are already in the heavenly dimension, they're not making a trip from far away. They are stepping through this thin membrane, this veil we call reality, into our illusion. It's pretty scary, isn't it? Some of you right now, I know your minds are already going to the matrix, and there's a lot of truth in that, by the way, at least the first one. A great deal of truth in that. So I told you I wanted to talk to you about being present to the present. I, I want to start out very fundamentally in, in, in an elementary way and say this to you. I think maybe many of us got off to the, on the wrong foot. We got off, and it was, you know, it was legit. 
But usually when I ask people to describe their conversion experience, it usually sounds like this. They tell me where, and they say, when I invited Jesus into my life, and I don't correct them, but really the converse of that is true. You didn't invite Jesus into your life. He invited you into his. That's the reason why what he did as a rabbi was so radical because in that first century culture, Rabbis didn't choose their followers. Followers choose their rabbis. And that's why he would say, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Interesting, right? So if we go back to that and understand that, then we begin to understand. See, most of what we call prayer is our desperate attempts to get God to somehow intervene in what we call reality. And prayer actually is his invitation to us to come out of our illusion into his reality. That's why you're always saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Correct? You know, when Jesus prayed in John 17, make them one even as you and our Father, even you and I are one, he was not praying for ecumenical unity. He was not praying that these squabbling disciples would finally get their act together and stop arguing over who's going to sit on the right or the left. The location of this prayer should be a dead giveaway. He's, he's in a garden, isn't he? And he said, Father, make them one as you and I are one. And I love this part of it. Oh, I feel myself drifting here. <clears throat> I love this part of it. He gets to a point where he says, I have finished the work that you have given to me. I am no longer in the world, which I want to call a time out on that one 25 years ago when I saw something I'd never seen before. I thought, what? You're no longer in this world. Oh, yes, he, he was there in a the garden, wasn't he? He was right there in a the garden. He's not been arrested, arraigned, beaten, flogged, taken to a cross, his limp body put into a tomb and come out in resurrection yet, yet he says, I am no longer in this world. And it happened in a garden because oneness was lost in the original garden. And so what he was praying for, would you please stop these bit? No, he wasn't talking about these bickering disciples. Here he is in a garden praying for oneness to be restored, the union that the human race had in the very beginning. Do you see the connection between that and the presence of God? Awareness has always been the issue. I live at the ocean, and there's hardly a time I ever walk down with my feet in the surf and feel the waves lapping up on my feet, and I look out against the expanse as far as I can see across the Atlantic that I don't think about this refrain in this wonderful old hymn, The Love of God. The younger ones won't know it. <clears throat> it's eloquent prose. If we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, 
would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. My God, where are the songs that used to be written like that? And the author is unknown. It was found scribbled on the walls of a cell in an insane asylum. Maybe he hadn't lost his mind. Maybe he had been come into his right mind. That man somehow had begun to see the pervasive presence of God. The presence of God is infinite. It's everywhere. It's always. It's forever. You cannot not be in the presence of God. There's no place to be. That's why David, you know, he's, he's groping for words like I find myself doing all the time, trying to explain the ineffable. He says, you know, I could make my bed in hell and for everybody that is still obsessed over hell. Maybe you ought to spend some time in Psalm 139 because I can assure you, if you try to go there, you can't get away from him. (laughs) I thought you'd be more excited than that. Do we pursue God? Or is it the other way around? Is he pursuing us? We have a relationship with God not because we sought him, but because he was pursuing us. From the very moment you were born, wow, this is encouraging me if it's not helping you at all. From the very moment you were born, he was pursuing you. God is obsessive. That's why Jesus would use even hyperbole and say, he numbers the hairs on your head. He doesn't know just how many there are there. He assigned a number to each one of them. When I went back to the room before the meeting, which you can look and see that I can't afford to lose anymore. I'm thankful in my, in my case that he not only has numbered the hairs on my head, but he remembers the original count. But I go back to my room and uh, had seen my wife off, and I look at the bar of soap there by the sink, and I'm thinking, oh, my, some more loss. (laughs) But he knows that that one is number 2,336. Don't tell me God's not obsessive. Don't tell me he's not obsessive. I think we have made it too hard. We've made it too ethereal. We, you know, that even the term spirituality, without intending, has been taken by the Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, you see, it might be a challenging thought to you, but everything is sacred. The whole thing is a temple, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. If you can see it if, it, if it's in the visible world of matter, if it's in the visible manifested world, it's spiritual. The problem is that you have been unable to perceive it. The Talmud says that he has assigned an angel to every blade of grass that is constantly whispering, grow, grow, grow. 
I thought about since you've moved out on the farm. And this morning or this, this evening I was thinking, yeah, it's a really good thing that you moved out on the farm because there was a need for there to be some distance between the encampment and the tent of meeting. Because I think God wanted them to separate themselves from all those things that were mundane. Or maybe it's not, maybe it's not so much that because I really think to a great degree that uh, he is in more of the mundane than we realize. I ask the question, who's pursuing who? He's always been pursuing you. If you ever have a desire, it's because he initiated. Your desire with a small d was, the impetus was his desire with a large d. See, I came out of performance religion years ago. That's why the message of the finished work and the new covenant and so many different other terms to describe the finished work. Because that's really the only way to interpret this book to begin with. You understand that, don't you? And it's not given to us in the Gospels. It's given to us in Genesis whenever he said on the seventh day he rested from all of his works. And it wasn't because he was exhausted, was it? But it was to help us to understand in order to see. And to, to see, we have to see from the finished work. We're trying to look toward the finished work. We're trying to look toward teleos or the end. And he's inviting us to come out here because he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's inviting you to come back here and look back because you have a wonderful future behind you. I guess this was anticlimactic. I don't know. I don't always, I feel more numb than I feel spiritual, in quotation. And I think maybe it's because of our lack of understanding of spirituality. Because, you see, <clears throat> You were sent here not as a life sentence. Life is not a sexually transmitted disease. That's right, I said it. But that's how most people live, as if it's a sexually transmitted disease. One of the greatest Catholic minds, mystics of all time, Chardin, said, that don't worry yourself with that. That's that's just the way I drift off sometimes. He was the one that was responsible for coining the phrase, "You're not a human in pursuit of spiritual experience. You're a spirit being having a human experience." Now, that helps me understand the spirituality of all things. It helps me to understand. Have you ever wondered what Paul meant when he said pray without ceasing? Yeah, right. It's because we've misunderstood prayer. It's not, over, it's not overcoming the reluctance of God. 
God doesn't wait for you to get up in the morning to inform him about what's going on in your world, well, in your world as if he doesn't already know. That's not, no, 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 that's not at all. If I, if I accomplish my goal here tonight, when you walk out of here and you step over the threshold of this building, maybe it will start in a very faint way and become amplified over time. You'll be, begin to engage with God's original language because this was not God's original language. I have great respect for it, but that's not God's original language. I believe it was Augustine that said God's original language was creation. And Paul would affirm that when he says in Romans 1, he says, for the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation being understood by the things that are made. And we are afraid that if we get too mystical, too ethereal like that, that we're going to, you know, leave the reservation and we're going to go out there, you know, and we're going to become a part of some of these crazy people that worship the earth. No. No, that's not it at all. He's, that's the reason why that the language, especially the Hebrew language, is, it, it's, uh, it's an epigraph. It is written in symbols. You live in a world of symbols. This is a semiotic time, if you're not familiar with that term, a semiotic time. The most powerful images that are used in advertising right now while we're in this room, I'll guarantee you the commercials that garner the most attention during the Super Bowl are the ones that are not heavy word content but symbols. Symbols. Soundtrack and symbols. That's the language of the present age. Because a picture is worth a thousand words if you see it. And oh my God, when you walk out there, you walk into the temple. The temple is everywhere. The sanctuary is everywhere. Excuse me for my passion on that. I get up in the morning and throw the blinds open, and I will stand there in contemplation just looking. I'm talking about being present to the presence. I'm talking about if we can begin to tweak our ability to perceive. I'm not talking about just seeing because there's a difference between sight and perception. They're not the same. It's like the blind man that Jesus, I mean, to me, I, you can correct me on this. and I'm correctable most of the time. But remember, Jesus healed the, the blind man, not the one who was born blind, but he healed the blind man at Bethsaida. And he did it in two phases. And it wasn't because he didn't have enough faith. He, didn't, he couldn't muster enough faith to do it the first time. Most of the miracles that Jesus did were done immediately, instantaneously, right? But in this case, he decided to do it differently. He spits in his eyes, which was not offensive to the man who was blind because his saliva is dripping off his eyelids onto his cheeks. He has an epiphany. He realizes, oh, this must be a rabbi because they believed that there were medicinal properties in the saliva of a priest. So he, suddenly he has hope as he's wiping saliva out of his eyes. And Jesus asks him the question. I always love it when Jesus asks questions as if he needs information. He asks him the question. He says, what do you see? 
He said, oh, I see men as trees walking. Well, obviously, he'd not been born blind because he had a frame of reference. He knew what a tree looked like, and he knew what a man looked like. And then Jesus touched him. That's when he saw all things clearly. See, I believe that most of us in this room, if not all of you, have been heavily influenced by the anthem of the church, Amazing Grace, that says, you were once blind. I was once blind, but now I see. Yeah, you see, but you don't perceive. And he's inviting you, if you want a second touch, to walk in the realm of perception. Now, the reason why I'm going down that road is because if we can begin to teach people how to perceive, if we can teach this family, we can teach those who are present, and you're here because of intention, the power of intention is an amazing thing. And that means when you come together collectively, as you did earlier, it's not a press. It's because you're not stepping out of that world into this realm, you are already living in that world. Make sense to you? You're already living in that world. That's why Jesus is always, you know, when he's talking about the kingdom, you notice he's always using metaphor. He's always saying the kingdom of God is like what? He talks about seed and soil. He talks about organic stuff, doesn't he? He says, that's what the kingdom of God's like. I, I, I actually think that Jesus was a master at teaching about things that were hidden in plain sight. I mean, I think in Mark chapter 4 when he's talking about the sower went forth to sow seed. And listen, and if you don't read your Bible that way, that's fine. Uh, you know, I've got a high-definition surround sound one. I believe that Jesus was looking at a man in a nearby field that was walking with a bag of seed around his neck and these rough plowed rows with stones because the Holy Land, they grow more stones than they do fruit and vegetables. I mean, it just comes up out of the ground. The seismic activity just pushes them out of the ground. And he's reaching in there and he's taking handfuls and he's throwing them into the wind. And some of them are just wafting out there and falling into freshly plowed soil. And some of them were falling on stones. And the people could see as he is teaching, look, there comes a bird. <laughs> Takes it up. And Jesus took that and he taught. He's teaching you more than you could ever imagine because creation was his original language. Before men invented quill and parchment, all of it was speaking to us. Ah. Oh. David got it, didn't he, when he said, the heavens do declare your glory. I don't want to sound like hyper-manipulation, but man, I feel my Pentecostal roots coming on me, and I want to rear back and preach. Now, I understand that's not preaching. It's not speed and spit. I understand that. <laughs> but man, when I get excited about this, you know, I want to... I want to declare it with passion. The heavens declare his glory. Night unto night they utter speech. What? The st 
stars, these glittering diamonds sprinkled against black velvet at night. They don't have voices, but they are still speaking to me. That's being present to his presence. Mm. I make no apology for that. I, I enjoyed that. I haven't had a relapse into that in a long time. Yeah, my history, I used to preach in black churches, man, with B3, Hammond B3 organs behind me. <laughs> I remember I did that one time years ago out at Bethel. And I thought, oh, my God. Jonathan, you know what I'm talking about. You, you start doing something, and you're thinking the whole time, why am I doing that? You know, oh, my God, why am I doing that? I'm toast here. I'm done. This door is closed, and all these laid-back people from California came up to me. He said, man, you know that thing you did tonight? We want you to do that some more. Because my wife's not here, probably chastise me for that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so I think that we need to return uh, to, and I, I, maybe I am taking too much liberty here, to awe-ism. That's, that's what I want. I want to live in awe. I I'm, I was reminded our first grandchild. She's 14 now. Remember, uh, it, we had see we had we had all boys, and my first grandchild was a girl. And when she learned how to walk and talk, I was done. <laughs> I was done. But I'll never forget. She awakened something in me one day, riding down the road, and I was as nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof, because I had her by myself, and she's in the car seat. And Caden, the most beautiful child I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm a little biased. She was a chatterbox back in those days. Chatty Kathy. And I hadn't heard her say anything. And I'm thinking, oh, she must be really nervous that she's out solo with Poppy. But then she broke the silence and I understood what was going on. I'm in... I'm just driving, thinking, oh, I hope this is going to be okay. And she yelled from the back seat. She said, Poppy! You know, I swerved. I thought I was going to wreck the car. I said, what, sweetheart? What is it, Caden, love? It's a cow. <laughs> she'd seen them in books, but she'd never really seen one before. And in that moment, as simple as that sounds, God told me, he said, you need to return to awe and wonder. That's why I have a problem with people loosely using, even abusing the word awesome, because there's not really much that's worthy of that adjective, awesome. So maybe some of that is because we're blind to what we're blind to. It's a real condition called scotoma. Uh, that there can be minute changes in your environment because you forget that you see what you're looking for and you 
What you fixate on, what you focus on, determines what you miss. That's why the Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every bush is burning. Maybe that's the reason why that when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush and there's this really obscure exchange that takes place between them and he wants to know, well, who should I say sent me? I am Yahweh, Yahweh. It's uh, the breath of God. Sometimes the most deep spiritual encounters I have are wordless. I just sit and take deep breaths of air. Because I know that he is my breath. He's even the breath of every atheist and agnostic, which I've always found interesting. Because the first person who ever took took a breath on this planet was not Adam when he was resuscitated after God finished the crown jewel of his creation, forming him like this divine artisan and shaping him in his exact image and likeness and hovers over him and breathes into his nostrils. And he (gasps) takes that first breath. His heart pumps for the first time. Blood rushes to his extremities. His organs, his vital organs are ignited And when he opens his eyes, he flutters his eyes. He is looking at the one in whose image he was made. It was God who took the first breath on this planet. And it is God that is still resuscitating and keeping everything breathing to this very moment. So much so, the irony of that is when an atheist says there is no God, they are saying it by the very breath of God. But I understand, some of you got encouraged when I closed my iPad. I I could see encouragement just flow through the audience. I think like Jacob, many of us, we we have to almost get in in between a rock and a hard place, right? You know, I, uh, I, I don't tend to agree with all of the perceptions of Jacob. As soon as I mention his name, you, you think of a used car salesman. I'm sorry if you're a used car salesman. I shouldn't have said that was the wrong analogy. You don't want to buy a used car from him. I'll put, I'll put it to you that way. Um, trickster, right? Master, con. But that's not originally why he was given that name. He's given that name because he's a fraternal twin. And when he emerges from the womb, the secondborn of fraternal twins, his head doesn't come out first. His hand comes out of the womb and grabs the heel of his brother. So that's why they called him the one who catches the heel. I think even in that prenatal state, because the prophecy had been given that the elder would serve the younger, which is turning upside down of everything in their economy, but even in his very DNA, he was reaching for his inheritance. 
His head doesn't emerge from the womb first. You can imagine how strange that must have been as she is giving birth. You know, Esau comes out head first, and he's hairy all over, or he has that complexion, that ready, ruddy complexion, and they're waiting on the second one. They know there's two in there because they've been in a wrestling match for nine months inside of her. Scripture says so, right? They're wrestling inside of her, two nations, right? And instead of seeing Jacob's head come out, his hand comes out, which to me is a wonderful compliment because even in his very DNA was this desire to reach for what was his by birth. But it wasn't until all of his attempts to get what God had already said was his, and he lays his head on a rock. Remember the whole story? And he sees a ladder extending from heaven to earth and the angels ascending and descending. It wasn't until that moment, remember what he said? God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. I want to make a promise to you. Go ahead and stand. I want to make a promise to you. You're having encounters with Jesus in the most unlikely places, and you're not, awareness is an issue, because I believe, like Paula D'Arcy says, that God comes to you disguised as your own life. Think of the people right now that are so other than you so different from you. And think of the resurrection appearances where Jesus is appearing in different places, in unexpected places, to unexpecting people in forms that were foreign to them. So how many encounters? I hear people all the time, I want to have an encounter with God. I just want to have an encounter with God. They're having encounters all the time. Yeah, usually the people right now that are pissing you off the most. Just seeing if you're still awake. Yeah. You say, do you believe that God has a ra- I absolutely believe that he's done that. The people that draw out judgmentalism in you. It's the kindness of God that is trying to reveal to you that your judgmentalism is a reflection of yourself. Because you don't see people or things the way they are. You see them as you are. John, please come up here. John, please. Come on. This is your house. You need to run me out of it. Lord, <clears throat> and I, I use that term, curios, Lord of all, recognizing what it means. Lord, I don't have to give you permission to do anything. I just have to be in position to receive it. 
We say we're waiting on you, and it's really the other way around. You've been waiting on us. And oh, how your loving kindness and your patience is beyond definition. I'm so thankful, so incredibly thankful for how patient you are with me because I'm not even patient with myself. Anybody else can say that? Yeah, I'm really grateful for your patience with me because there's nobody more impatient with me than me. Lord, I ask in, in, in their journey in the gate, by the way, because <laughs> the gate of heaven's everywhere. Sometimes you have to get between a rock and a hard place for it to become the gate. But like the Celtics say, you know, there, there are thin places, but I don't think it's relegated to geographic places exclusively. I, I believe that there are thin places that we can step through all the time. I thank you for this house. I thank you for this precious man. I thank you for his heart and his precious wife. I ask that you'd lift your countenance upon them. It's already, but may they get a glimpse of what you see and may they begin to understand that you what a perfect place you have been hiding. It's in the crevices and corners of our peripheral vision. And as we are able to repent and turn and change the way we think, we're going to begin to see you in ways we could have never imagined. Because as Jordan read, I believe, from Ephesians 3, I believe it was, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we're able to ask or think according to the power that worketh within us. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Bless you. You've been listening to The Gate Charlotte's podcast. Consider subscribing so you don't miss a message. We're sending this to someone who might need encouragement today. Thanks for joining us.